You can overcome your limiting beliefs and live a life of love, financial accomplishment, and creativity. Welcome to the Evolve Podcast, a podcast about disrupting your life to spark new evolution. Evolve your body, evolve your mind, evolve your soul, and evolve your tribe. And now it's time to disrupt. And with that, yeah. folks, we want to welcome you to another episode of the Evolve Podcast. Uh, joining us today from Oberlin, Ohio, is the most interesting man that I know, my co-host, W. Miles Riley. Welcome, Miles. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. On this brisk, brisk, cold day in Oberlin. <laughs> Beautiful day outside. And somewhere lost in the mountains of Utah, I am Steve Cutler. Uh, we are really fortunate uh, to be joined by our guest, uh, Gay Hendricks. Uh, Gay has been a leader in the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind transformation for more than 45 years. After earning his PhD from Stanford in 1974, Gay served as professor of counseling psychology at the University of, of Colorado for 21 years. He has written more than 40 books, including bestsellers such as Five Wishes, The Big Leap, Conscious Loving, and Conscious Loving Ever After. The last two were co-authored by his co-author and mate of more than 35 years, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks. Gay is also a mystery novelist with a series of five books featuring Tibetan Buddhist private detective Tenzin Norbu, as well as a new mystery series featuring a Victorian-era London detective, Sir Errol Hyde. His book, Conscious Luck, re uh, reveals eight ways to change your fortunes through the power of intention. Gay has appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, 48 Hours, and others. His latest book is The Genius Zone, Gay Hendricks, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Stephen Miles. Great to be with you. Yeah, we are really excited to have you. Uh, I heard you on a podcast some time ago and uh, afterwards picked up your book, The Big Leap, and uh, read through that uh, a couple of times, if I'm being honest, because it, uh, it, it took me a few times to really unpack uh, all of the information that's in there. It was so impressive. Uh, so I fell in love with this book. Now, for our listeners who have not read The Big Leap, can you give an overview of what that book is about? Yes, The Big Leap is about two really important subjects that changed my life, and I've used them to change many people's lives since then. There's two big um, things to learn in The Big Leap. One is learning about what I call the upper limit problem, which is why human beings sabotage themselves when things are going well or start to go better. And uh, most people can look inside themselves and identify one or more times in their life where things have been going well, then they've done something that torpedoed that. And sometimes it can be as simple as an upper limit problem, like you've been getting along with your mate for three days, and then all of a sudden somebody starts an argument. Uh, or you've been eating well for three days and suddenly you get the urge for a triple decker super cheeseburger. And uh, Okay, stop talking about me. Stop talking about me. Kate. Stop <laughs> talking about me. Uh, so that's the upper limit problem in action. And what it's caused, it's caused by 
not allowing ourselves to have longer and longer periods of feeling good, feeling good about ourselves, feeling good in relationships. And so we've all got a set of strategies we use that knock ourselves out of those good feeling times when we're in those for a while. So uh, I learned it the hard way. The first time I used to be really obese. And back in 1969, I weighed 300 pounds and wow. I weigh 180 now, uh, six feet tall. So um, I was definitely obese looking. And I had an enlightenment moment actually where I fell down on the ice when I was um, 24 years old. And I didn't knock myself out, but I, I call it, I, I had an out of Hendrix experience. I knocked myself, uh, <laughs> Great you know, like if a, uh, if a 300 pound person falls on the ground, that's the same as basically a refrigerator falling on the ground. You know, it's a pretty big thud. And it knocked me out of my usual perception of myself. And for about two minutes, I could feel all of these things that I'd never paid attention to before. Like I could feel those layers of anger in my body that I had kind of locked in my muscles. And then I could feel a layer of sadness down in my chest that I'd never paid attention to. And I could feel fear down in my belly that I'd never paid any attention to because what would happen if I started to feel some feelings, I would just go eat something and get my attention away from that. And so for the next year, I changed my diet completely. And I started eating fruits and vegetables and things that I'd never eaten before. And the first month, I lost more than 30 pounds. And then wow. I did something that I began to call the upper limit problem. I was feeling like a million dollars. I felt so good after just living on pure fruits and vegetables and good food for 30 days. Lost 35 pounds, lost two or three pants sizes. And so I was walking down the street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I looked to my left through a window and there was a family of four eating a gigantic triple decker ice cream sundae. And I just lost it. I completely went unconscious and I went in there and I ordered one of them all by myself. And I sat down and I just plowed my way through this huge bunch of ice cream. And for about 20 minutes, I felt high as a kite from all that sugar. Then I got the worst stomach ache of my life. I was actually, I was walking down the street when it hit and I doubled over on the street where somebody said, are you okay, sir? Are you okay? And it was just all of that toxicity hitting my pure stomach for the first time. You know, my I was so yeah. purified after 30 days. Well, I started calling that the upper limit problem. And I had another one later, but it was, I saw it more clearly the, the second time. And then the third time I saw it more clearly. People sometimes ask me because the big leap has kind of turned into a, a Bible for entrepreneurs. And a lot of times people ask me, how long did it take you to write the book? And I say, well, it took me a year, but I've been thinking about it for 30 years because <laughs> starting with that experience of mine, I started working with that and with people and started helping people increase the amount of time that they feel good inside themselves and in relationships before they trigger that upper limit problem. And so if, like in my case, I got from having a relationship where we were constantly in conflict to now for the past 43 years, having a relationship with a woman, Katie, 
that I almost don't have any conflict with, you know, because, well, like for the past 20 years at least, neither of us have said a cross critical word to the other or had an argument wow. of any kind because we learned in relationship there's a secret to not arguing. And that's if both people simply tell the truth about what's going on inside themselves and both people take responsibility for things that come up, you can move through conflict very quickly. What gets people stuck is that both people dig themselves into the victim position. One person says, mm. oh, I'd be happier if you weren't doing X, Y, and Z. And the other person says, me? I'd be a lot happier if you weren't doing one, two, and three. And so people dig themselves into a victim position. And there's only one way out of that. And that's by taking healthy responsibility, saying, okay, what was my part in causing this situation? And so the moment you step out of the victim situation and say, hmm, how did I cause that? If you can get both people doing that, you've got a magical relationship where it's hard to argue and fight after you get good at doing that. And so Katie and I just got good at doing that 30 years ago or so, 40 years ago, and just uh, we practice what we preach. You know, there's an old Turkish saying that if a bald man finds a cure, he's surely going to first use it on himself. And so we just use all these, <laughs> we just use all these things That's on ourselves great. and uh, we're our own best customers. Is there a, a moment great, that triggered that upper limit? That. Is there a moment that triggered you spotting that upper limit in your relationship? Yeah, that's a great question. There was this one moment, and I can't remember which of our books I wrote about this in it, maybe it was in Conscious Loving. About a year into our relationship, we got into a hassle. Katie was late getting home, and I can't remember the exact thing, but her, her, office was on the other side of town. And on the way home, uh, she'd gotten stopped by a cop because her license was still a California license and she hadn't gotten it updated to being a Colorado. And so she was had two bags of groceries and had to sit there with the groceries while the cop was giving her the ticket. And so she was a half hour late getting home. So when she got home, without even listening to her or what was going, I started hassling her. What are uh, you doing? It's, it's eight o'clock. Why? You said you were going to be here at 730. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And, but as soon as I said it, I realized, oh, my voice sounds angry, but my stomach is telling me I'm scared. I could feel mm. butterflies in my belly. And, mm. and it, so it wasn't, it was a, it was a scare thing. And so without even blurting, I, I just blurted it out. I said, oh, I realize I'm hassling you, but I'm not angry. I'm actually scared. And Katie said, oh, what are you scared about? And so I remember standing there where I was standing on the bottom rung of the stairs and she was standing at the door and I just stood there. I realized I'm afraid I'm going to lose you. Mm. Wow. Very and we profound. both... Yeah. And see, I hadn't even been aware of that. And as soon as I became aware of it, the whole relationship changed because she was no longer, you know, feeling victimized by my, yeah, 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 you're late. And I was no longer feeling like the victim of her being late. And 
and this was before cell phones. So it wasn't like she could call me up and say, hey, honey, I'm going to be late. Uh, she had to wait till she got home to tell me. So that was a wake up moment for me where I realized I had been communicating at her from the level of anger and criticism. But what was really going on was I was afraid of losing her. And so I was criticizing her to push her away so it wouldn't feel so bad if she left me. And I mean, she that's in turn the becomes empathetic. She, in turn, she becomes empathetic to your fear. Yeah. And it was a magic moment. Everything changed in that moment. Wow. I, I think we went, we became allies in that moment. You know, couples can be either sort of perceive each other as enemies or allies. And I think we, just kind of shifted into the allies mode there. And that really changed a lot for us. We we were two people that had feelings and stuff we got stuck on, but we were no longer the enemy when we got into that kind of stuff. We were each other's helper in moving through it. Yeah, what a profound paradigm shift. Uh, you referenced this in the book and you, you mentioned this just a minute ago that for you, especially relative to your weight loss, you went through this process of self-sabotage. Um, is self-sabotage something that is always a trigger or, or always an indication of an upper limit problem? Yes, upper limiting is our primary way of self-sabotage. So, okay. um, but uh, it's an upper limit problem is not just falling down on the ice or something. An upper sure. limit problem be as simple as worry thoughts. That's probably the number one upper limit problem. You know, you're walking down the street, you're feeling good, and all of a sudden you think, oh, I've got an appointment this afternoon with my boss. Oh, what's he gonna do? Is he gonna be a prick like he usually is? Or, you know, and so you get lost <laughs> in a chain of thoughts that right. end that feeling good. And then the thing is that we start taking our thoughts seriously instead of realizing, oh, I'm having worry thoughts because I need to cultivate more good feeling in myself. Instead of doing that, we start chasing the worry thoughts like, oh, well, what if, you know, what, what if I say this to my boss? And then what if he says this to me? And so you're off in the chain of, of future oriented thinking without even paying attention to what's in the here and now. Yeah, I love that. And I, there's a great de degree of self-awareness that you're talking about here. Uh, you referenced when you fell down that you noticed things, emotions that were living inside of your body. Uh, talk a little bit about how you became aware of this and what do you do when you're coaching people or you have been counseling people to become aware of these emotions that are living inside of them? In the beginning, what we have to do is get ourselves accustomed again to kind of going inside and tuning into our inner world, because most of us aren't encouraged to do that. You know, like uh, yeah. uh, most of us don't sit down and figure out, okay, what would I like to eat for lunch? Okay, I'd like a, a small spinach salad with a tureen of turtle soup on the side. You know, we don't get that specific. <laughs> we just sit down and eat lunch. And yep. so um, it's it's a challenge in life. It's radical to tune into what you actually want. Mm. I was in my 30s before I sat down and really figured out what my life purpose was. It was very, I mean, it's changed everything. Once I sat down, it took me about an hour of just thinking about what is, what am I really here for? 
But the important thing is to develop a big why for your life. What am I really here for? What am I up to? And I came up with this one sentence that I put in the big leap about that my life purpose is to expand every day in love, creativity, and abundance as I inspire other people to do the same. To me, a good life purpose is not just for you. It's for you inspiring other people to make your life be a model of something you would like to have other people learn from. So that's how evolution goes on this planet. I see your, your thing there that says uh, evolve on your cap. Well, evolving right. comes from, you know, like I learned something and so I put it in a book so a million people can get the wisdom without having to go whack on the ice you know, and, and fall down. <laughs> it saves everybody a lot of trouble. Right, right. Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a beautiful point. I love this idea of sharing it with other people. I want to come back to this upper limit. How do people really know when they've reached an upper limit problem? So I think these self sabotaging behaviors, that's one indication, but how do I know that this is a true upper limit problem that I have? Well, there's only a handful of them. There's only a handful of ways we can upper limit ourselves. One, but is uh, by eating something that's not good for us. That'll slam on the brakes of our good feeling in our body. Another is criticism or argument in a relationship. That's always an upper limit problem. Uh, so here we say, no couple's argument is about what the couple thinks it about. Like oh, sex great, problems great are never about sex. Money problems are never about money. Problems with kids are never just about the kids. So there's mm -hmm. only four or five things that couples fight about, and none of them are what they think they're really fighting about. Because if the fight is about money, it's often about really about control mm -hmm. and fear, things that don't have to do with the actual number of dollars. Like I've had in here people that are worth $100 million fighting about the fact that she buys the organic $7 peanut butter and he thinks the $3.99 <laughs> Skippy and Jeff is just fine. You know, I remember so that from your book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had got <laughs> and the, another one was a billionaire, two billionaires fighting about uh, the cost of toilet paper. She liked to get the super oh, expensive yeah. kind and, and he thought the regular old kind was just fine. But why would two billionaires fight over something that calls $4.99 or $7.99. The reason is because there's a fear of loss of control. One person has to control the situation because if mm. they, they feel like if, I, if I'm out of control, a whole bunch of stuff is going to happen. So I have to keep a tight lid on my partner or a tight lid on myself. Um, so having accidents is also an upper limit problem often. And just check. Um, you know, last time you stubbed your toe or pulled a muscle or something, what were you doing? I can remember the last time I was really feeling good at the gym, pumping iron like crazy, but I, I got into the, you know, the competition of it rather than the body sensation of it. And I torqued a muscle up here that took me, gosh, probably the better part of six months to get rid of the pain in there that just caused from losing myself and going into that old trance of I must not have felt like I deserve to feel that good. And so yeah. that triggers a lot of our upper limits. So worry, thoughts, accidents, illness, like uh, 
a very powerful woman executive that I worked with. She was incredibly brilliant, but one thing that was holding her back was that she still had some nervousness about public speaking. And, you know, fear of public speaking is a very common problem. You know, they say that at a funeral, most people would rather be in the box in the casket than giving the eulogy. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But it's a big problem. And, and a lot of people have it even into middle age. And so I, I, I got her to join a thing like Toastmasters, I think it was that one, that basically is about showing up every meeting, meeting and giving a little presentation and things like that. On the morning of her first presentation, she got a sore throat. Oh, wow. Now, was this a real sore throat? Or was this a sore throat that was an upper limit problem? In other words, has a bunch of bugs invaded her and caused a sore throat? Or was there something else going on? Or maybe both. So fortunately, she had me on speed dial. And so it was a 10 second solution. My question was, hmm, let's just think of why would your body have dialed up a sore throat? <sighs> I'm still afraid of rejection. I'm still afraid yeah. of, you know, that audience looking at me like, you know, my mother and dad used to look at me, you know, with daggers if I couldn't explain something well. And, you know, so, there, you know, that, that was what was coming up. Well, the interesting thing was 10 minutes later, there was no sore throat. Mm. Had she talked herself thing. out of it or through it or what? Well, I think she talked herself through it by going down inside and knowing where it came from and then making a different choice. Once her see, our unconscious will always dial up things to help us out, but it does it in such a stupid way that it gets us in trouble all the time. The unconscious mind is incredibly powerful, but it's not very smart. The conscious's mind is very smart, but not very powerful. That's why you have to get the two working wow. together. I always tell my students the longest journey they'll ever take is 12 inches from their head down to their heart, from their brain down to their uh, <laughs> chest. <laughs> I love that. Everything changes when you make that journey. Well, there's a lot of science that backs up what you're talking about. I mean, far too often when we reach these upper limit problems, we uh, we will cause a problem. We will cause an issue, whether it's those fearful thoughts or the injury or the illness. And I think it's a radical thought for some people to say, well, wait a minute, but I really did get sick. Well, I, I really did get injured. But I, as soon as I, in my life, came to that awareness that most of what was happening to me, I was causing. I mean, there are scientific studies out there that show that people have the ability within the mind to even change the color of their eyes. I mean, this is how powerful, as you reference the subconscious, the deep uh, work that needs to be done, uh, it can, can be because it can totally change who we are. So, Gay, okay, when people become aware that the onion layers are being pulled back and they become aware of an upper limit problem. What is the first step that you recommend that they do? Well, Steve, the first step of any serious program of self change begins with commitment. So okay. let's say if you want to expand your genius, that's the second thing that's in the big leap is the zone of genius and how to get yourself right. operating in the zone of genius. Well, 
start with a commitment, a commitment that sounds like this. I commit to increasing the amount of time every day that I spend in my genius zone. Make a simple commitment like that. But it's something you can actually track. You can actually track the amount of time every day that you spent doing things that you love to do and doing things that make your biggest contribution to other people. That is the genius zone. When I first started thinking about this way back in the 80s, I realized that I was only spending about one hour out of my eight or nine hour workday doing what I most love to do, what was in my genius zone. That was surprising to me because I had started thinking about this, but then when I actually documented it, I realized I was only spending 10% of my time there. So I set the intention. I made a commitment to increasing from 10% up to 30%. So the three hours out of my nine hour day would be spent in my genius zone. And again, what's the genius zone? It's when you are doing what you love to do and you're doing something that makes a contribution to yourself and others at the same time. So I began to focus on increasing that amount of time. I got to that 30% pretty quickly. It took me a couple of years, but I got to that 30%. Then I bumped up to 50%. I said, okay, I want to, at the end of the week, when I count up my hours, I want to see that I spent at least 50% of my time in my genius zone. Probably getting there took another year or two. Ultimately, I set the intention by 1999, the end of the century, I wanted to be operating at 100%, where I was only doing things that I love to do and things that make a contribution to other people. And it worked. You know, so for the last 20 some years, I've only been doing things that I love to do and only been doing things that make a contribution uh, by my own standards to other people. And so that's writing books. That's you and I talking right now with you guys. Uh, that's me going out on a freezing day to Chicago and being on Oprah or whatever the thing is. But whatever I'm doing, because it fulfills my life purpose, you know, I wanted to create a job I would never want to retire from. You know, yeah. I haven't had to work for money for the last, you know, 30 some years probably. But uh, what turns me on when I get out of bed in the morning, I always sleep from 10 at night to 4.30 in the morning. So 4.30 in the morning finds me doing what I'm doing now, you know, in some form or the other, either writing a book about it or talking to you guys or doing something that has to do. I do a lot of uh, consultations with executives and things where I, you know, will work with a company for an hour or two and kind of get them unstuck and um, then send in some of my protégés and students to work with them afterwards. So, um, but what I'm getting at is creating a life where you're focusing on doing the things that you are uniquely suited to do, that you love to do, that you do even if you weren't getting paid for it, if you had some other way to fund your life. Well, that's how we ought to be operating. You know, like you guys are in your genius zone here compared to what maybe you were doing five or 10 years ago. You know, this, right. this, uh, and almost everybody probably that's listening or watching will have had that experience too. But it begins with commitment. You have to make a sincere body mind commitment to increasing your genius every day. And then just start keeping track of it and start. We start here with people 10 minutes a day. We ask them to start 
pencil it into your calendar today, 10 minutes, 10 minutes tomorrow. When you're ready to do 20 minutes, let us know. And so start wherever you need to start. You don't have to buy a sailboat and go off to Tahiti and, uh, and uh, live on uh, coconuts and mangoes <laughs> for the rest of your life. <laughs> I have I to share that, this. Can I, I share you're this? talking about this like step up process. Yeah, go for it, Miles. I got to share this. It's about an upper limit issue that I didn't think about it as an upper limit issue. Uh, recently, I have been on a tear with practicing piano, jazz piano. I've been practicing in a way that I've never practiced before. Last Sunday, I find out there's a jazz concert at the college. I decide to go to the college. I go to the college, I'm watching a jazz concert, I'm listening to the piano player, and I'm thinking, I'm better than that piano player. I decide to leave. As I was walking out of the concert hall, I smashed my finger in the door. Oh, yes. Ooh. Okay. I went in the bathroom, it was bleeding. I wondered if I had to go get a stitch. It was pretty bad, but I didn't think I needed a stitch. So I just kind of wrapped it up and paid no attention. Just thought, all right, let me just sit down and I'll do some other work with the other hand. But having you on here now, I just wonder in the back of my mind, was that going on? Yeah. Could that have been going <laughs> well, let's, on? Let's think about that. There's because an upper limit. Yeah, uh, by the way, I envy you so much for being able to play jazz piano. Uh, I got stuck in piano lessons at the kid as a kid when we had to start doing something with our left hand that we're not doing with our right hand. That was yeah. inconceivable <laughs> for me. That, that, that was my point where I, I dropped I'm out. The same way. I, I took yeah. up a I took up the trumpet. Only three fingers needed for a right. trumpet. Uh, but. Uh, but yeah, think about it for a second. You see that jazz piano player, what's going to go through your mind? It, it brings up a fear, maybe, doesn't it? I could yeah, never be bit. that good. Or, yep. yeah, it's like I took up the saxophone for a while, too, as a kid. Then I made the mistake of buying a Charlie Parker album. <laughs> Put that thing on. <laughs> I, my first thought was, how can any human being even think that fast, much less right. Right. play an instrument that fast he and dizzy gillespie i still love that music i listen to right. it all the time to me yeah, that's kind too. of the pinnacle pinnacle of jazz is uh yeah. is uh dizzy gillespie and charlie parker um but see upper limit problem it takes courage it takes courage to face it it takes courage to move beyond that fear of oh i could never be that good you know and to say okay uh -huh. i'm gonna put in that next 10 minutes today you know to right. kind of get off of that and i'll tell you i mean in every profession i mean imagine what musicians go through professional musicians i have a dear friend that's been and has had had hit records in pretty much every uh, decade since the 1970s he's a household name yet he calls me sometimes and he still get panic attacks about, yeah. am I any good or not? Have I made a contribution? Yeah. Am I, wow. am I fulfilling my creative, you know, so it doesn't matter the, or another situation. I worked with another fellow, another um, guy that I know in the entertainment world, he had a panic attack the day before he was supposed to go down and put his uh, handprints in the Hollywood walk of fame you know where oh, they have yeah. john wayne's oh, handprints yeah. and all that. Yeah. what about that would create an upper limit problem well it's exactly the same thing 
that that thought of being saluted like that and honored like that, it's permanent. I'm going to put my hands in the pavement and I'm going to have my handprints next to John Wayne's or Hoover. And that thought triggered a panic attack because he no. thought, I'm no good. If they really knew me, they'd know I'm no John Wayne or I'm no Frank Sinatra. You know, so it doesn't matter what level at the game you're at, you can have that old fear that I'm fundamentally flawed, the old fear that I don't deserve love, the old fear that I'm not good enough, the fear that I'm the wrong skin color or the wrong weight or the wrong mm -hmm. ethnicity or whatever to occupy my full genius. And I'm certainly not saying everybody needs to be a performer. Most people's genius will be in the quiet of themselves and in the quiet mm. of their own family, maybe. But it's still interesting, you know, like Abraham Maslow used to say, it doesn't matter if you're making a genius soup or writing a genius symphony. It's calling on the same thing inside yourself. Wow. Yeah. And you talk about it in the book, Gabe, that there are, is it four? fundamental areas where people run into these upper limit problems. I know we talked about some of the symptoms or the thoughts that maybe we use food or criticism or fears of money or control, but what are the four areas, the four common themes that people run into uh, relative to these upper limit problems? Yes. Well, the upper limit problem is always triggered by fear. So something okay. happens and it awakens a particular fear in you. Most of this is unconscious. And then that fear causes you to do the accident or do the get sick or it brings up whatever uh, fundamental fear. There's Say really something only bad in the relationship or something along those lines where you're sabotaging. Yeah. Yes. Um, gotcha. Like a, a movie producer friend of mine can uh, he weighed 320 pounds. And he realized that every time he would get feeling scared and lonely, he would go to the refrigerator and he noticed that pattern. So one time that happened and he went to the refrigerator and rather than getting something to eat, he just stood there and felt the fear and the loneliness and didn't try to escape it. So a lot of times what you have to do is simply be willing to face and feel whatever fear that is. So one of them we touched on is that fear of feeling fundamentally flawed in some way. I'm the wrong gender, I'm the wrong height, I'm the wrong skin color, I'm the wrong IQ. So feeling fundamentally flawed. The second fear is about a fear of outshining other people. Mm -hmm. It's an old childhood fear based on if I really well, shine, I'll take attention away from other people who need to shine or, oh, I'm not supposed to shine. That's the golden boy or the golden girl. They're supposed to shine. And so early on, we learn who's the golden boy or girl and who are we in reference to that, either in the classroom or at home or wherever, and learn to let other people have the light instead of realizing that everybody's supposed to share the light. It, it works for everybody best if everybody opens up and lets themselves shine in the highest way that their genius will allow them to do and not compete with other people. That it's really about opening up ourselves rather than competing with other people. So the second one is that fear of outshining. A third one that's really big, too, is a fear of 
that if I change, it'll be being disloyal to other people like my family or my mm. uh, friendship network or uh, people that uh, depend on me. And so I've seen that in lots of families where one person changes, maybe they take a seminar and get enlightened, or maybe they start meditating and something happens. And then it often causes problems because, you know, ideally human beings, especially in a relationship, need to be committed to growing together. It doesn't mean, you know, like if one of them loves to play checkers, the other one doesn't have to learn to play, to love checkers. It's just the other person needs to learn to love whatever they love and have the relationship being about supporting both people for realization of their uh, genius and moving through their upper limit. So, but there's the fear of disloyalty. If I, if I change my beliefs or habits or anything, it'll be being disloyal to my family of origin. And there's another one that um, I run into a lot of times with successful people, that it's a fear of burden, that more success will mean more burden. If I'm more successful, I'm afraid I'll have to go to more meetings that I don't want to be at anyway. <laughs> you know, I can remember people right, telling me that. Right. And um, <clears throat> an entertainer friend of mine went to sleep on the conference table at the big meeting where they were negotiating his record contact and everything. But he was so didn't want to be at that meeting that he actually fell asleep and they actually still <laughs> kid him about it, you know, 20 years later. Wow. So, that's um, funny. yeah, so learning to spot these fears and moving through them. The key thing, though, is just spotting them. It's like when I was a little boy. I had a bad dream where I thought the curtains, the way there were curtains blowing, there was a monster behind it. And I remember I was four or five years old and I got my mother up to look to see if this monster, what the monster, and she just brought in a little flashlight and shined up there and showed me there was no monster, that it was just the wind blowing the curtain a certain way. And then she did something very smart. She left the flashlight with me and said, now, if you ever get feeling like that again, just turn on the light and look very carefully up there. And, it, it, you know, if you see a monster, then with the light on, let me know. Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> I never had, I got the You've point. You've now got I, the tool. Yeah. 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 Well, I think this, this concept that you're teaching is essentially giving people a flashlight that as soon as they start to feel something boiling up inside of them, they can say, okay, I'm going to turn the flashlight on because there's not really a monster here. Fear is something that is, um, it, 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 it's, as they say, false evidence appearing real, right? So we feel something inside of our bodies. We, uh, but then as soon as we shine the flashlight, we say, well, that thing that I'm fearful of is not actually true. And I love how earlier, uh, as we were talking, you said that the growth of your relationship really happened when the two of you committed to being completely truthful in who you are and how you showed up. And essentially that means getting rid of fear. So, Gay, as people go through, uh, could, I, they... could I could uh, I uh, could I put Please. a pause there for a minute? We don't you recommend bet. getting rid of fear. We advocate right. getting clear yes. about fear because where would it like go? That. You know, uh, right. where uh, it's like any event in life. It's just something that occurs, and with fear, it's been a signal system that's been in place for millions of years before humans developed right. our our thinking cortex long before that we had to respond to fear. 
would it be yeah, would, so it, would, would it be safe to say to spot it and and rearrange it because it's such a powerful energy yes well you can rededicate it uh you right. know we That's say what I mean. fear is excitement without the breath when you hold your breath <clears throat> it gets scary you know but when you when you learn to breathe with it it turns into excitement and energy yeah i so, love that uh, yeah Okay, so we've we talked about fear, we've talked about feeling this fear, and that we're, you know, there's uh, fundamentally flawed, outshining, disloyal burden, those four areas that people can start to identify where some of these upper limit problems are manifesting themselves. Let's go to the genius zone. I know that you talk about the different zones in your book. Uh, well, and I started reading the genius zone book, which uh, so far loving as well. What is the genius zone? How would you break that down for people? The genius zone is when you're living inside that commitment. You're living and making good on that commitment to spend more time with your genius. And so after a while, you develop a kind of a field around you in which you're supporting your genius. And the fact that you're doing that inspires other people to get in touch with their genius to me that's the highest level of genius functioning is when we're doing our genius so much that it inspires other people to tune into theirs and ideally in human life we all have somebody around who can inspire us like that but if you don't you know that that's a good thing to get a book like the big leap and make your own commitment to it and also uh, i think there's now maybe 1500 book clubs around the world that study the big leap and uh, you know take their people through it. I've spoken at a couple of the larger ones where they'll get 1500 people together and they're all reading the big leap. And so at the end of it, I come in and talk to them about it. It's a lot of fun, but you know, whatever it takes to get you tuned up to your own genius. I meditate every day. I've meditated every day now for gee, almost 50 years. I learned mm -hmm. back when I was a grad student. And so every day I go inside for a half an hour or so. And it's a good thing because uh, it lines everything up inside. Most human beings problems come from a lack of alignment between their mind and their body and their emotions, you know, being out of harmony with those systems. But once you get lined up inside where your mind is in harmony with your feelings and your feelings are being fully loved and accepted in your body, that makes life a very different thing because you're walking around with this field of energy around you that I call the genius zone. What's the difference between the genius zone and what you call the zone of excellence? The genius zone is very different because in the zone of excellence, you're doing things that you're good at and that make you money or get you out of boys or out of girls and uh, get you good um, marks and performance and increase your well-being on a regular basis. If you have a partner, your partner likes it because you're you know, driving a new car and they're having all the stuff that they want, etc. And so if you're in your excellence zone, you're doing things that really work well, that please people, but that has a limitation to it. And the limitation is when you've been too long in your excellence zone, two things start to happen. You start to rust out inside and you start to burn out on the outside. 
So rust out means you've been doing the same things. You've been going through the motions. You know, like I had a lawyer come in one time and he told me, <clears throat> this is a little bit X-rated what he said to me, apologies in advance. He said, <laughs> do you know how I spend my time? And I said, well, I think I know. He said, let me tell you simply, I spend my day taking money from one asshole and giving it to another asshole. He said, that's what I spend my day doing with lawsuits. And he was very depressed because he was looking, he was at age 40 and he was saying, oh, when I get to be 75, if I get really, I'll be taking lots more money from bigger assholes and giving it to other big assholes. Is that really how I want to be spending my 50s, 60s and 70s? Well, that's a very depressing thought, isn't it? And that to me is a symptom of being in your excellent zone too long. Because, well, like he told me, he said, my kids love to fly first class. I know they would be upset if they had to fly coach. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, imagine how the rest of us feel when we get stuck back there too. Um, but so everybody's got their own view of the hell that life will be if they start making less money or something like that. So that's the fear that comes up oftentimes when I ask people to start putting attention on their genius zone is, oh my God, if I do that, I won't be making my, you know, $500,000 a year anymore. And so, but the truth is, unless, especially in our 40s and our 50s, midlife comes along, if we haven't really started opening up and asking ourselves, what do I love to do? How could I build my life more about what I most love to do? Those kind of questions, unless you start asking them, I feel blessed because I started asking them, you know, in my late 20s and 30s. But a lot of people wait until midlife till they've had some kind of a heart attack or a divorce or something that shocks them into awareness. And then suddenly they realize, oh my God, I've been in my excellence zone too long. I need to break free from that. So that's a magical thing to to do, but it's not an easy thing to do because by the time we're in our excellence zone, we probably got a lot of good things going for ourselves. And it's <laughs> it's hard to trust we're going to leave that behind if we jump into our, our genius. But that's why I say start with 10 minutes a day, then go to 20 minutes a day, then go to an hour a day. Don't tax yourself. Don't think you have to run off to Tibet and rent a cave. What, what are some of the uh, in, intrinsic and extrinsic results that you see when people start to make that shift, whether they go from zone of competence or zone of excellence into their genius zone? What are the intrinsic and, intrinsic and extrinsic uh, results? Well, the intrinsic result is that you get to feel more peace of mind. We say mm -hmm. peace of mind is really peace of heart and peace of body, because to get to peace of mind, you have to fully accept and claim and participate with everything you've got down there, whether it's anger, fear, sadness, sexual feelings, joy, compassion. The fullness of life only comes when we're willing to participate with it fully and savor life, even when we're going through a difficult time to actually 
savor our fear and savor our sadness and feel our anger, to let ourselves participate with the fullness of life. That's what gives you a sense of vibrance inside. But then to participate with other people means that you're actually working toward acceptance of other people as you're working about acceptance of yourself so that you're loving yourself ultimately becomes about your ability to love other people. It's hard to do it the other way around. It's hard to right. make yourself love somebody unless you can find some way of loving that same aspect in yourself. Yeah, beautiful perspectives. Well, Gay, I know we're coming close to our time and you've got to jump to another meeting. Um, as we start to wrap up here, if there were one simple habit that you would like our listeners to start with, uh, is it simply what you said before to start for 10 minutes or is there somewhere else that you would like our listeners to start? I would start with a mental and body thing and then an action step. Okay. The mental body part is to really commit to bringing forth more of your genius every day by making, if you are so inclined, make a sincere head and heart commitment that goes like this. I commit to bringing forth more and more of my genius every day of my life. Okay, that's the commitment then make good on that commitment by starting with 10 minutes. Even if you're only spending, maybe you don't know what your genius is yet, but you spend that 10 minutes just saying, hmm, what is my genius? Hmm, what do I really love to do? That's where we start people here. We put them in a little room for 10 minutes and just have them wonder about that. Hmm, what do I most love to do? You know, because that oftentimes after that 10 minutes, people come out with a smile on their face that they've never realized before. They might be 55 or 60 years old and they never really ask themselves, what do I most love to do? So it's, it's a beautiful piece of magic. Yeah, it's a great, great uh, starting point for our listeners. Well, and on that note, folks, it is time for us to wrap up another episode of the Evolve podcast. We want to thank uh, our, our guest, Gay Hendricks, for joining us today and my co-host, W. Miles Riley. Uh, Gay, for people to, if they want to learn more and uh, want to continue to follow all the great work that you do, what is the best place for people to go? The best place is Hendricks.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. And also, if you're on social media, Facebook, we have a big presence called Hearts in Harmony, where we do a lot of our relationship work. So Hendricks.com or Hearts in Harmony, those are both good places to start. Well, Gay Hendricks, thank you so much for joining us today. What, a, what an enlightening conversation. And it's amazing to see when someone puts their heart and they live in that zone of genius, how much impact they can make in a very short period of time. So, uh, Gay Hendricks, thanks again. And hey, remember, folks, that it takes time and consistency to evolve. But first, you have to disrupt. Now it's time for you to get out there and evolve. And evolve. Thank you for listening to the Evolve Podcast. If you like this episode, share it with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at evolve underscore cast and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. And now it's time for you to get out there and evolve.